Welcome to the Tabletop Summary, where we dive a little bit deeper into why we love board games. Strap in and prepare for a deep sea adventure. Here are your hosts. Welcome, welcome listeners to the Tabletop Submarine Podcast. It is so good to have you here with us today. My name is Josh. I am one of your co-hosts and with me as always... I'm Andrew. And today we have Stephen Bonacor of the many, many facets of media that he participates in. Please, please, please welcome Stephen Bonacor. The podfather of gaming, of course. You must have used that title as you address me, Andrew. <laughs> How you doing, guys? Thank you so much for inviting me on. It was a pleasure. When I think of people who have stories to tell, you are in the top five list of people that I would want to have conversations with. So when we, when we kind of thought about where this podcast could be and where it could go, we had to have you on at some point. Well, that's really nice of you. And it was nice meeting you. Uh, we just met recently, right, uh, at, uh, at Gen Con, where you... Where you presented the Podfather with a with a beer, the official beer of Gen Con that I did not have to stand online for twenty five minutes to get. You handed me one, which was very nice. You did not. I had to pay homage, and uh, <laughs> some might say a slight bribe. Yes, that was probably part of it. But that's okay. Nah, no, it was really nice meeting you there, and uh, we got to, well, we got to spend a little time. Uh, I guess we were eating uh, eating dinner at that point, sort of, right? For, from the trucks, the food trucks and things like that. That was yeah. a fun little block party that sort of starts off Gen Con. It's, it's always an exciting moment when, when, they, when everyone's there and doing that. It is. It's just a nice vibe. You get to just be around people who are talking games and, and just, just being part of that energy is so great. I 100% agree. And this is my, you know, I actually haven't met you in person, Stephen. I've only known you through... Pretty much Board Games Insider, your podcast with Ignacy Chevichek. I'm a huge fan of that podcast. I listen Thank to you. it pretty passionately. It's a wonderful podcast. For those of you who don't know, it's a podcast pretty much all about the business side of board gaming. And you, Ignacy, both have lived in that world for a long time. So there's amazing insights to what's going on with, uh, you know, Ignacy either trashing Gamma or what is Asmodee <laughs> doing now. It's it's a really great podcast. I highly recommend it after you listen to Tabletop Submarine. Of course, after you listen to Tabletop Submarine, you should look up Board Games Insider, wherever you like to get your podcasts. And as Josh just said, Ignacy Chevichek, the president of Portal Games, and Stephen Bonacore, the podfather of gaming, former president, owner, founder of Stronghold Games. And uh, we, yeah, we, we deep dive into the business of hobby gaming is basically what we do. And not only do we dissect the news of, of what's happening in the industry at any given time, we also go out to the listeners and we ask them, well, what would you like to know about? And people post questions in our guild on Board Game Geek, and we scrape that and we talk about that. That's basically the two major parts of the show. And then we also ask our audience questions about what's their favorite this or what are they going to be doing, what conventions. So we have this big inter interactions with them through our guild on board game geek and we've been doing it for now eight years 245 coming up episodes um very happy about doing it and uh, um just because i'm retired does not mean i'm going to stop doing it i i really enjoy that interaction and i get to then hang out with you guys you guys wouldn't want to talk to me if i wasn't doing something in the industry so this is kind of cool that we now uh we now get to do this no, I would absolutely call you just to have a conversation no matter what. So it's fine. very nice. Thank you. <laughs> so, yeah, so this is a really, it's honestly a really big kind of, I think, a milestone. Like, I never thought in a million years, 
you know, I would because you know, I first got introduced to you with you know the Dice Tower, obviously, you and your arch nemesis Tom Vassal. That's where I kind of you know got introduced to who the Podfather was, and through that, I found Board Games Insider, and you know that it's just these people who really sparked my passion for tabletop gaming and helped me understand what tabletop gaming was and the world behind it. So really, I just want to say, you know, thank you for all that you do for this hobby before we jump into this. And please keep doing what you're doing because people like me who love this hobby and just like listening to people talk about it and knowing more about it, really appreciate it. So oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Me. I Thank you. Thank you. That's very nice. Uh, and uh, I absolutely are going to stay connected for a long time. You know, you don't just lose that knowledge, right? Just because you retire, you know, you still, I still, my, my job right now, the way I, I look at myself in the industry, I, I give back. I do things to give back. If it's the podcast and, and trying to educate people, if it's mentoring, I mentor a few people, um, at various intervals during the, during the year. I, um, I give money to charity by, by running the Podfather the Cruise. We're going to be running a cruise coming up, which is all for charity. Um, and I'm on the like the board of directors for the Jack Vassal Memorial Fund, which sole purpose is to give away money. Give away money to gamers in need, which is a really good thing. And if anybody is in need, they should go over to jackvassal.org and they can check that out. You know, if you're a gamer and you've got something that's happened to you that's not of your own doing, you can qualify. You've got to, you know, we got to go through a whole rigmarole to do this, make sure. But it's it's a wonderful thing. And I personally give given away hundreds of thousands of dollars to gamers based on on, on my uh, being on the board of directors. Love it. That's a great cause. And it's a great thing to call out. So I appreciate that. Yes. Thank you. Well, I think that's enough introductions. We know who our crew is today. So let's go ahead and uh, go into our pre-launch. The pre-launch. Get to know us and our guests. Okay, so I'm going to hand it off to you, Andrew. In our pre-launch, we talk about games we've been playing recently. So, Andrew, what's been on your table or your you know dining room, coffee, whatever? Just, just tell us what you've been playing. So, part of my uh, deep diving into polyomino games, we brought up Whistle Mountain with my wife and I. And I think this game is incredible. Um, it's one of the few games where I feel like you're building the game as you're playing it. And I mean, you actually change the surface face of the board and how you can place pieces on it and how you gain resources. Um, you know, it, it just is really an impressive game design and very underheralded as far as I can tell. I know it's not been on the market a long time. It's from Bezier Games. I don't know why people aren't talking about this more, but I'm going to try to fix that a little bit by talking about it right now. This game is such a weird amalgamation of kind of, of different kinds of things where you are building infrastructure in between mountains and then people can fall off into the river and, and kind of be swimming in a whirlpool. And it's just this weird kind of funky, interesting amalgamation of these interesting things. But that's not the game. The game is the building of the infrastructure and getting resources and utilizing those resources to build more and build higher. And it's like kind of a race game. It's really hard to describe. Maybe that's why it's not getting the marketing that it probably deserves. But I highly recommend anybody who's even interested in anything I've mentioned, uh, go check it out. It's a really good one. And uh, I was pleasantly surprised by it. Sounds great. So it's great that you mentioned Bezier Games. Mine's also from Bezier Games. And by the way, shout out 
to Ted and Tony, the owners of Bezier Games. Unbelievable, wonderful people, good friends of mine. I mean, I'm friends with like the owners of most of the companies, but they're very special to me. They're one of those companies that started almost at the same time as Stronghold did and have just killed it, you know, as, as time went on. So shout out to them. And my game from Bezier Games, which was released at Gen Con, is Cat in the Box. So if you haven't seen it or heard about it, Cat in the Box is a trick-taking area control game, which is like, what? How did you do that? But the theme of this game is so cool. It's Schrodinger's Cat and and quantum physics. Mm-hmm. Crazy. So the rule book, yeah. rule book liberally uses the theme and says that you're doing an experiment on subjects, which are cats, and each cat has a unique size, the number of the card on the card, and color, which are the suits in the game, uh, red, blue, green, yellow, four suits. It's really well integrated, that theme. All the cards in your hand are black with a number on it. When you play a card, say you lead, you lead a card and you say, you play a four, green, and you call green. You then take a marker and you put it on the main board on that. So that card is now a four green for the game. Nobody else can play a four green because if they tried to, that would create a paradox. Mm-hmm. And if you create a paradox, you can't win the game. Um, the game's going to continue with, and, and all of like standard trick taking rules have to apply. So if I played the four green and you could play any card you want, you could play a, a five, a five yellow, which would be, be playing like off, you know, sloughing off a card. But then you can't play more, any more yellow cards for the rest of the hand, the rest of the, the round, right? Until all the cards are played because you don't have any. You just declared you don't have any. And you're marking these on your player board and then on the main board. It's so darn clever. I've played it mm-hmm. only two player, which is a couple of special rules for two player, but it plays with two player. I played it with my girlfriend last night. So this is really new knowledge to me. Um, and I kept creating paradoxes. So I kept losing. You get negative points for tricks you take if you do paradoxes. You gain positive points if you don't. Mm-hmm. And you also, the area control portion of this is that on that main board where you're putting the token saying, okay, I played a four green. I played, a say, a five green. And maybe I played a four yellow. Those things would all be kind of connected. Like if you think about it, like on a, on a line, there'd be one above the other one and one on the side. That's a grouping. Your largest grouping that you have put onto that main board becomes a bonus if you don't mm-hmm. create a, para- a paradox. So say you say you won four tricks at the end of the hand and you got the largest grouping of three, you'd score seven points. It's ah. a really, really clever System And then there's more rules about um, trying to predict the number of tricks, but we didn't play that because in a two-player game, you don't do that. But um, very impressed by this. Everybody loves cats. Everybody knows about Schrodinger's cat, and everybody likes to screw with time and paradoxes and stuff like that. So highly recommend checking out Cat in the Box, also by Bezier Games. I know that when I was at Origins, as well as when I was at Gen Con, it was hard to get a demo in because this game was so hot. So I did get a quick five-minute demo instruction, but your description now was actually better than the demo. So I feel like I got more information just now. So thank you for that. Oh, you're very welcome. And yeah, they were demoing it at Origins, but you couldn't buy it there. So Mm -hmm. I went, I was literally, I was like first online to make sure I got a copy on 
Thursday. Uh, I, yeah, I think I, I bought it before it even opened up the show on Thursday. And then I ran over to, to the uh, Asmodee selling area to get Twilight Inscription, Ugh. which was like one of the hot games of the show. All right, Jeez. before I let you talk about Twilight Inscription, Josh, what have you been playing that we should get you talking about? Well, I want to hear about Twilight Inscription. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I haven't... Um, I've been diving into uh, Disney Sorcerer's Arena. Um, so this is the uh, one of the newer releases by The Op. Um, yep. The OP, however you pronounce it. Um, this is a really cool two-player skirmish game that is based off of the Disney Sorcerer's Arena app. For those of you who don't know, in this game you are pitting uh, Disney characters like Gaston, um, Dr. Facier, Mickey Mouse as the wizard, the Sorcerer's Apprentice version, um, against each other in a kind of area control King of the Hill battle game um the reason that i like this game so much is because it has it's very reminiscent of smash up which is one of my first first hobby games i really started to collect um i love smashing two decks together that have their own kind of unique personalities and trying to figure out and work out how they best cooperate together Mm -hmm. and the problem with smash up though is that it's not very great at two player in my opinion it really shines at three or four and Disney Source Arena is specifically meant for two players, and I absolutely adore this game. Um, I got to demo it before it came out on the the op play testing group, so I got to get an inside scoop a little bit with all the play testing I like to do, and it's really fun. You have these characters who are individually crafted to kind of match their persona from their respective films. Like Aladdin is very quick and sneaky; he likes to bounce around the map. Sullivan. Or, you know, Sully from Monsters, Inc. is a Puron tank. He likes bashing into people. Gaston, you have to take chances with him and be riskful because he's a boastful kind of, you know, narcissist. But <laughs> the, the personalities come out in their respective little decks. And it is absolutely fantastic. I was not expecting much because the last Disney game I played was Villainous. And just to cut long story short, I hate Villainous. I don't think, I just don't like that game. So I was very hesitant to jump into it. But I did. I'm really glad I did because now it's one of my favorite games. They have tons of expansions coming out for this. I got to demo um, the – I got to do a start demo of the expansion where they have Davy Jones and Moana and Stitch coming out. And they have this whole water mechanic they're introducing into it. And it is so, so fun. It is a game that I can see myself diving into. They want to have – they have plans to do like tournament plays and championships mm-hmm. plays. They're going to try to implement that. And I'm all for it. Like this is a game yeah. – that is not difficult, but you can really dive into. There's an upgrade system to get the characters more powerful. Um, it has everything I love in a two-player game, and I highly recommend it to anybody because I want to play this competitively so I can see what secrets and combinations people unlock. Because nothing excites me more than when I see something with two characters that I didn't see a combination, even though I've studied these decks a little bit now. And I have a new strategy to look out for. I have a new strategy to implement. But highly recommend it. Disney's Sorcerer's Arena Epic Alliances. I heard you mentioned you don't like Villainous. Um, I recently played Villainous Star Wars Edition, I guess it's called. Yep. Um, yes. I didn't love Villainous either. I was like, I, you know, I mean, I like the Disney movies, but I don't know. Just playing the villains and then the way you were playing them. It, I didn't. I, I wasn't enthralled by the game. I thought the system was fine, but I wasn't enthralled by the game. I played the Star Wars version and I was playing Darth Vader and I was trying to either corrupt Luke Skywalker to bring him over and make him, you know, rule the galaxy as father and son or to kill him. One or the other I had to do. And I loved it. So <laughs> you might might want to try 
villainous Star Wars edition before you completely throw out the villainous system. I'm willing to give it a try, yes. This brings it back to the thing we've said many times, which is I think that every game has a audience and, every, and there's a game for every kind of person out there. So just because this doesn't work for you, Josh, doesn't I mean it's not worth trying for the people. I, I, I would sit down and try Star Wars villainous easily because, you know, I heard it's a lot different. And, you know, games get better, tend to get better as they go along and they expand more. And, you know, I would sit yeah. down and play villain, like base game villainous with somebody if they wanted to, but only on the condition that I play Prince John. Because that's the only one I actually uh, slightly, slightly enjoyed playing. But, you know, <laughs> it, that, it's, that's neither here or there. So also, word, word of the street is that you do have some uh, some more expansion characters coming out for Disney Sorcerer's Arena. So you have that to look forward to as well. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm super pumped for that. That's going to be another money hole I'll be digging here soon. <laughs> okay, I think our instruments are ready to go. We are setting sail to dive into... Um, Steven's story, what do we say we get going and start our dive? Yes. Steven, spin us a yarn, tell us the tale. We're here to listen to your story. Spin us a yarn, a yarn. Aren't they often like fairy tales and, you know, made up and things. These are real stories I have for you. <laughs> the one Fair I've enough. selected. It's a story. Uh, and I, and I was thinking about like, you know, what I could, what I could do. At, f- at first I found it difficult. Well, what am I going to talk about? But, and I, cause I, I actually have, you know, right. We all have like really interesting and oddball stories. A lot of them are very personal sort of, and maybe they don't translate well. And God only knows if this one will. Um, so what I did was I, I went to, um, Oh, a little bit about me and the kind of games. I mean, I'm a social gamer. So interaction mm-hmm. in the game between the players is is hugely important. And I don't just mean like across on the board, but just this, like talking and, and trash talking and stuff yeah. like that. So like Battlestar Galactica, huge social, right, hidden trader game. I love that too. And social yeah. game with all the trash talking and all the BS that, that's going to go on. You know, oh, F you, you're the silent, I don't trust you. I love all that kind of stuff. But <laughs> I also, for similar reasons, because I'm also like a, a more the merrier kind of person, a very uh, social guy in general, I love party games, good party games, you yeah. know, for that reason as well. So Codenames is maybe the best party game ever done. And it's arguable, but it's it's just an amazing game. Yeah. And I consider myself pretty good at this game. <clears throat> or, you know, who knows? Am I or not? Well, you can ask my friends, especially with this story in mind. So one day we were playing this game. I think we were at Jeff Engelstein's house. I'm pretty sure. You know Jeff Engelstein, know the designer and good friend of mine from New Jersey. And... Uh, we're playing the game and, you know, you got your 25 words there out on the table. And one of the words was carrot. Another word somewhere was stick. Uh, in my head, I mean, I say, oh, conditioning, the carrot and stick. It's like psychology 101, right? It's, it's about, right, you carrot, you reward good behavior, stick, you beat <laughs> or beat the horse <laughs> or, 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 uh, or punish bad behavior, right? Right. Condition. But also there on one of the words was air. I'm pretty sure that was on the table or something like that. Right. So I'm looking at that. I'm like, well, I can't use conditioning, which is what we're talking about, the characteristic conditioning, but 
hmm, digging a little deeper, it's called operant conditioning. That's what it's called. So I assume I'm with very intelligent people when I'm playing, my good friends. I assume that they're very intelligent. So I say to them, operant two. Can't use condition. So I'm with operant two. And they're thinking about operant. Why? What is, what is that? And one of them even says something like, I heard of operant conditioning, but I don't know how that applies. And then I think that they even like made the ridiculous leap. Like, well, operant conditioning, conditioning air, we'll pick air. I'm like, so it was like ridiculous that first of all, they made a double leap to get to a word that doesn't make any sense for operant. I would have just said conditioning then or something like right. that. Right. Um, or, or something with air, like breathe. Um, and, and they couldn't even anyone, anyone couldn't come up with the fact that there's operant conditioning. And the two things you talk about are carrot and stick. So as soon as the game was over, I said to them and explained this whole thing, they were like, what? Huh? And I went, you know, I need a better class of gamer. And that right. phrase has now stuck with me and my friends ever since the day. And this is like eight years. Every time we get together and we talk, they're always like, you sure you can play with us? You maybe you needed a better class of gamer. Or when somebody right. does something dumb in the game, you need a better class of gamer, don't you, Steven? You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> so that was yeah. the, that, that's like one of those memories from gaming that will always be there. Because it was a moment when, like, I thought I was doing something perfectly right in front of my, I thought, smart friends. They completely screwed it up. Maybe I screwed it up. So I don't know who was right and who was wrong, but it didn't work out. I need a better class of gamer. I love stories like that because the inside jokes that form in people over time becomes its own language. And then that becomes in itself a reason to have game night and a reason to connect with other people. And then you can bring other people in and they get to hear those stories and get to understand the inside jokes. And then it just becomes bigger and better. And that's the kind of thing that party games, I think, do differently than other games. When I play a game of, I don't know, Azul with people, I'm not going to get moments like that. I'll get no. fun. We're going to have a good time. We're going to talk sure. about things. Maybe we even bullshit banter in different kinds of directions. We don't even talk about the game while we play. But it doesn't necessarily lead to a better class of gamer jokes. So that's kind of <laughs> that's right. And and you just mentioned something really good, right? You play a, a an abstract, or you play a um, a heavy euro. You're not gonna get moments like that. You're not gonna get an experience. You might have a great like, oh wow, I, I made these great moves and I was able to solve the puzzle better than you. Hey, congratulations, fist pump. That's great. But right. I love games that are experiential, like Betrayal at House on the Hill. Even the original, right. which was like broken. The game is like broken. And like a, a good percentage of the times, it the, the way that the stuff ends up and the haunt, it's called a haunt when you get the bad guy starts, it, it almost didn't make sense and it, it didn't work out. But you get such other great moments and discussions about the games you play I love mm -hmm. that game. It's one of my favorite games. And now, by the way, they have a third edition and they yep. have 50 new haunts. And I played one at Gen Con and it was brilliant. I awesome. love it. They streamlined a few things, but the new haunts all make sense. And there's a storyline between them. So there's like six storylines, maybe five. I don't remember the exact number mm. that you can then play a storyline 
of haunts where you're psychic investigators, where you're, oh, I can't remember the other ones, but that was definitely one of them. So we picked one of those haunts. I remember that. So, <clears throat> excuse me. Yes. Yeah, so that's another thing about gaming that I love is games that you have an experience when you're playing that game. And, and that, what I just mentioned was that as a party game. And there are other games where you talk about the game forever, Battlestar Galactica type games and, and Betrayal, where you talk about them for years to come because of the wild experience that you had at the table. I think a wonderful thing that we've touched on a bit here is the idea of experiencing things together um, through games. Betrayal of House on the Hill is a very popular game because it's such a great conduit for shared experiences. And the same thing with Codenames, which is why it's so successful. I, what I really like about uh, Codenames, I've only played one game of Betrayal, I think, and I'm not sure the teacher knew exactly what he how to teach it, so I didn't quite get it. <laughs> so I can't comment on that, but... When we went with code names, what's really great about doing is trying it. Basically, the entire game is trying to understand how one person thinks as a team. Yes. And you know, a lot of games you have to try to, you know, outplay your opponent. But very few games are do such a good job of tr as trying to understand what a person is thinking. Yeah, it's about outrelating the other person. So sometimes you can use inside jokes or you can use shared experiences and that helps. I find code names to be the most interesting when you play with people you do not know, where you don't have those shortcuts and you have to find common ground through it and read the other player through the process and find out what their experience levels are or little hip hints and tricks and tips about their experiences that you can then relate later. So if I find out you're a Star Wars fan, I can use some of that language. Or if I find out that you're a big hiker, I can use some of those language and some of that jargon in there. That's, I think, where, where Codename shines that other games don't do. Absolutely. So here's a question I want to pose to you guys then. When it comes to these shared experiences games and trying to understand people's thought processes... Why do you think gamers, um, both new and veteran, are attracted to these kind of games? Why do you think they gravitate towards, you know, even like the heaviest gamers who like, you know, Brass Birmingham or Twilight Imperium, they can sit down, play a game as simple as Codenames and still have a wonderful experience trying to basically. Uh, and yeah, and I, that plays back into what I started kind of the whole conversation with social we are social beings, human beings are social beings. And COVID, you know, showed how much we were like in this isolation thing that, that we needed to figure out a way out of. And we all were waiting to get out. So we used other mechanisms to connect like mm -hmm. Zoom. Zoom became the thing because we needed a somewhat of a social interaction. If it wasn't physically touching each other and sitting around a table, at least we had that way to connect. So all of the things that we're mentioning here and why a person who plays a brass Birmingham, the heaviest, maybe I would say driest of euros versus <laughs> no, no offense being there. It's not, it's not my style. It's a genius, genius game. And I love Martin Wallace games but not my usual go-to style. Um, somebody who plays that still, I mean, they're a social person that sits around a table and competes against the other people. And that's a social thing to do. And then socially, 
they want that experience of of playing a code names because you have the interaction, now direct interaction with everybody around the table, which in just in general, as gamers, we all crave. And as human beings, we all need. I also think that one of the aspects that this game really brings out is the ability to be clever easily. Not every game is accessible to a lot of people in a way that makes them clever or interesting. And in this game, it provides a platform where that's actually easy to get to. People who are not necessarily the brightest bulbs can put out some really interesting um, combinations and phrases in a way that makes them look like brilliant. And I think that any game that allows a player to feel smart is a pretty good game to begin with. And then add in the accessibility that anybody can play this game. And I think you've got a winner for that. So I think, and it's such a different thought process than the heavier games that I think it also makes your brain work in a different way as well. And that's also a draw. So I think this game hits on a lot of cylinders. Making, I always contest that if a game can make you feel clever, it's a good design. Mm -hmm. And I think Codenames was very important to the market because it introduced the idea that a party game can be really good. Because, you know, beforehand you had a lot of party games like, like Cards Against Humanity, Apples to Apples. Oh, I'm not going to yeah. say anything slight against them. Oh, I will. But, you know, okay, I'll, I'll say something about <laughs> Cards Against Humanity. Cards Against Humanity is, is an abomination. I, I don't talk, and I never talk negatively about games. You mean, you'll never hear me, like, really go negative. But that game is, it's got an audience. It's made millions of dollars, but so yep. has Monopoly. And let's face yep. it, neither are good games. In, you want to you want to win cards against humanity? I can easily win that game. You give me all the cards. I pick out all of the most disgusting cards in, in in the thing, and every time I just play one of the disgusting cards. It doesn't matter what what the, the, the first card played was. I just play a disgusting, and I won't even say some of the most disgusting cards in that game. I've seen it. It's just for a certain audience, like the frat boy audience. And no, thank you. I will elect not to participate in that game. And I think that's what party games were for a long time. They were just, how can I make this person laugh? And with, you know, Card Against Humanity, this is how can I make the most disgusting comment as possible? You know, mm-hmm. I played that game in college uh, a good amount. And I, I, you know, it was funny the first time, like, oh, 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 okay, this is silly. We're a bunch of college kids being stupid. And then, you know, as I played more and more games, like, wow, this is really bad. Is this what party games are? But with code names, it came out. And I really think it introduced the idea to the world that party games can be good. And with the pandemic hitting, publishers started to realize people are, you know, like you were saying, Stephen, crave that social interaction. And now I think a whole slew of excellent party games are coming out. You know, Green Team Wins from Origins, yep. the big that was a huge game. I want to play that game because it sounds really fun. Um, Phil Walker Harding just released Platypus. That's an excellent, excellent game. I love Platypus. It's a basically you're just using process of elimination in the game, but it's a party game. It's super fun. And these things keep coming out and out and out. And I, I really sometimes party games get a bad rap by hobbyists for some reason because you know they're not you know complex or they're not you know there's not a deep strategy to it. But like, who cares? It makes people feel clever, and there is that you're having a shared experience with somebody, and that's the whole point. You're trying to have this shared experience with somebody, and it's fun. It's absolutely fantastic. I love these new party slew of, like it's like a renaissance of party games that are coming out to the hobby. Agreed. Well, Stephen, that was an excellent story. I love hearing about Codenames. It's a fantastic game. Thank you so much for sharing it. Um, We're deep now. We're deep in the trenches of the uh, tabletop ocean. Let's just turn our radar and see what's happening in our future.
All right, Josh, why don't you go ahead and start? What's on your radar? So, um, back in the days of your 2021, I went to TantrumCon, uh, which is, you know, by Tantrum House, this little convention they put on in Charlotte, North Carolina. And uh, part, as part of my ticket and me helping volunteer there, I got a little game called Dwarves Citizens Duel. Spelled <laughs> D-W-A-R-7-S Duel. I will petition that this be one of the worst names for a game I've ever seen in my life. But Dwarves, I'm just going to say Dwarves, is a kind of a brand of games that has a couple different iterations of it. They are worker placement tile games where you are trying to oh. collect resources and get ready for a winter season to come and make sure your your company survives. This game isn't the dual version isn't really highly rated, you know. Um I haven't heard too many positive things about it. I haven't heard really anything about it, but I got two copies. I sold one of them for for food because <laughs> I needed a snack at a certain I need snacks in my work. Um but I have this <laughs> other copy and it looks cute. I appreciate games that ha- that have a very minimalist approach. It's just like literally a deck of tiles. And like seven meeples per person, so fourteen meeples. I've been wanting to play this game for a while because I'm willing to give any game a chance. And sometimes, some games that you know are kind of blocked by lost or lost in the shuffles of all these other games that are coming out each year. So sometimes they deserve a little more attention. So I want to give Dwarfs Duel a try because I love two player games for one, and two, you know, I like it has a cute aesthetic, and I just want to see if it's worth the. You know, worth the uh, ratings it's giving, or maybe it's a little lost treasure that I can have in my collection. I can show to people, but that's me, Dwarves Duel. Uh, Steven, I see in the show notes what you have down. I'm excited to hear you talk about it. War of the Ring, the card game. So, um, I assume you guys uh, yes. know what War of the Ring is, the board game. Um, it is my number one game. Period. Full stop. That is my go-to game. You say I want to play that, and I got. Four hours to do it within, we're going to play that game. Because it's a big game, right? And you got to kind of relearn the rules if you haven't played it before. I've had recently been able to play it twice, which is kind of good. I'm definitely going to play at least one or two more times this year, which is even better. So anyway, now we have War of the Ring, the card game, which is an Essen or fourth quarter release. Um, they're not 100% sure yet. Um, and I got to play a pre-production copy of the game with Roberto Di Meglio, who is the designer of War of the Ring, and he's the owner of Ares Games, and uh, he's also the lead developer on this new War of the Ring, the card game uh, implementation. Uh, keeps the spirit of the original War of the Ring, where you're traveling to different locations uh, via cards, and the locations can change in the, in the various games. So you may go through Moria once, or you may go... Go take the Karadras route, maybe, the other time. The advantages to going one way and the other way. Uh, and there's places where you will do lots of battling. So all of this is based on cards. There's oversized cards for, like, the, the locations and the events and regular cards uh, for for the, the the minions you're putting out, the, the battles you do, the things you'll do at the different locations, a bunch of tokens, uh, and... Uh, the game will play two, three, or four players. So if you're playing, if you're playing two, it's you have one deck of all the free peoples and one deck where all, where all the uh, shadow player. If you've got three, you're going to split the free peoples or the shadow pe- shadow player. Uh, and with four, you're going to split both of those. Each player taking part 
of the, either the bad guys or the good guys. Uh, really keeps again to the to the spirit of the original game. So the, the it's an excellent thematic tie-in to the original War of the Ring board game, but a completely one hundred percent different gaming experience, which is what you want. And it's going to play in a fraction of the time. This game will play. I think I, I don't hold me to this. I think it's a ninety to one twenty on the box. But okay. we played we played including the explanation with the developer. Um, and you know, he kind of tried to quick start us. So he didn't do every rule right in the beginning. I believe we played it in, in under two hours, like 90 minutes plus, and he crushed us. <laughs> he was playing the good guys. He ended up cr- with, it was four players. He and the, and the Roy Canaday of the Dice Tower versus me and Corey Thompson, also of the Dice Tower. And he crushed us and it was a great experience. So, uh, really liked it. Um, very excited to see this game in its final production. I uh, hope I get it at Essen if it's there. Otherwise, I pre-ordered it anyway. I am a massive, massive Lord of the Rings fan, and you know, like I'm so much so. You know, Andrew knows this, but my son's name is actually Tolkien. I when I heard this, <laughs> first name, first name is Tolkien. Yeah. Wow. So, okay, that's you know. uh, that's pretty nerdy, man. I love oh, it. Oh yeah, no, I, it, I, I couldn't. I don't think I could get away with doing like Aragorn or something, and him have a. <laughs> a normal life so Tolkien is what we settled on but you know I was I've been wanting to play War of the Ring for so long but I just haven't able to get a copy of it and when I heard the card game was coming out I got super excited for it so I'm really jealous you got your hands on it and hoping to get my hands on this one soon so, so before we even continue you guys did hear about the huge Lord of the Rings news that just came out today right I think you should go ahead and drop it on this show okay well if you haven't heard the Embracer Group, which is the parent company of Asmodee, has acquired worldwide rights to Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit in the same way that it was owned by uh, Middle Earth Enterprises. That was the licensing agent, essentially, that the Tolkien estate had given. They own all the rights to all of the stuff under Tolkien and related works. Like if somebody does the Silmarillion, they they own that too. Um, they have all of that. Now, the Embracer Group purchased this for an undisclosed amount, but the MEE, Middle Earth Enterprises, had put out a possible sale price of $2 billion. Oh, my God. I mean, that is a staggering number but for one of the biggest IPs on the planet. So they, in their, in their press release, they also mentioned new TV shows, new movies, all kinds of stuff that they want to do with it. Um, but of course, board games, electronic games, because they own all the electronic games companies as well. So this is just huge, huge hobby nerd news that came out literally this morning. And I've been talking about it and tweeting about it and all kinds of stuff been going on in the background this morning oh no i need to talk with like i have like one person i know who works for asset i need to talk to him now <laughs> say hey if i design a lord of the rings game luke luke let me let me see if i can design a lord of the rings game you know you know luke Pedersmith? yeah i know i i've met luke at origins and we you know we're appointed now um i pitched some of my games to him and we talked about it he gave me some great advice because newer designer here and you know he gave me some good advice going forward so yeah but if he's so, looking for lord of the rings games as soon as I as soon as I heard 
about this. The, this like the first person I went to, I I, I texted him. I'm like, Luke, huh, pretty good news, dude. I guess you're looking for some Lord of the Rings games now, in addition to all the other IPs that you're working with. He said, Yeah, this is a it's going to be very good, and it's really cool what they're doing. And I'm gonna, you know, he would drop a little high five to to Luke Petterschmidt at Office Dog. That's the studio of Asmodee that is taking independent game designs that they can marry into one of the thousand IPs that they have in their catalog. And their catalog mm-hmm. is insane within geek culture, within electronic gaming, within comics. They own Dark Horse Comics, which is the yep. third biggest comic company, I guess. Maybe yeah. third or fourth. Uh, and of course, they own Asmodee so they can throw stuff into into the Asmodee game system. So it's it's really big. I'm I'm very excited as a geek for all of this. That's amazing news. I'm happy now. I'm so happy. <laughs> so so Andrew, you you know, tell us about your little game that you uh, you want to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> no, I actually have a little what story about What little game do you have? I have a story about game? this. That's what I was looking up before. So go tell us about your game. Your little thing. In a completely different direction. Uh, I have on my radar the game Parks uh, by Keymaster Games. I really love what Keymaster Games does. And I have fallen in love with their art style and their just beautiful execution of everything they do. Uh, Campy Creatures, I saw it for the first time and I bought it immediately based on the art alone. It's been a really fun little game to play. And so every year I check and see what they're doing. And Parks is great. For whatever reason, it's never hit my table. It's sitting in shrink, and it's always been that way. So it's time that I need to break that down and put it on the table and get to look at all that beautiful, classic um, U.S. Park artwork, which I think they did a masterful job reimagining and doing a really cool version of that. Uh, it's just gorgeous to look at, and I cannot wait to, to get out on the table and play. But I'd also love to hear your story. Well, my story is, is just about... Um... At Dice Tower East, right, one of the recent conventions that I went to in July, I had the pleasure of hanging out with the designer of Parks, who I had never met before, Henry Audubon, who's mm-hmm. just a lovely guy. And he was gushing over meeting me. And I was saying, oh, dude, thank you. Hey, let's hang out. I'm going to have a little bit of a party here. Like each night, we're going to just hang out here and drink some wine. And then he just was enthralled by my knowledge of wine. And my knowledge of beer and a little bit of my knowledge of scotch. You might see a thread there of things that I, uh, I enjoy in my, uh, in my off hours in my retirement. So, uh, we spent a lot of time, you know, talking about, of course, his, his games, which was, which were wonderful parks I have played. And it's a, it's an excellent, excellent game and beautiful. Everything you said about it. They're doing such great jobs, um, uh, with their, with their implementation of, of the games that they're doing at, uh, Keymaster and, and he and I hung out a lot at Dice Tower East, just chatting about the rest of the world. And that was a, a lot of fun. So uh, giving a shout out to to the whole team there, who I then got to see at Gen Con as well. He was there uh, and the rest of the team was there. And they had a beautiful setup there of like, it looked like a camp, right? Yeah. Like, a, like a wooden house where they were selling everything and like it. It said like cashier like point zero one miles and things like that. It, yeah. was, it was really cute. The whole the whole thing that they set up there. I'm getting hot in my little room here. The AC is still out, which means it's time to resurface the submarine. Let's go ahead and get back to service and wrap this thing up.
Ah, well, we're up in the fresh air now. Steven, thank you so much for taking time out. I know you're a really busy guy. Thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule. Sit down with us, share some stories, and talk about why we love games. If people want to learn more about the Podfather of Gaming or what you're doing, where can they find you? I am busy relaxing. You're absolutely right. No, I actually... (laughs) I actually have three meetings today. It's just—it's crazy the amount of work. I'm putting air quotes. You guys can see me do it. Your podcast people can work that I do, <laughs> but I meet—I meet with people regularly for various things. Um, but to to keep up with what I am doing, please, as we talk about at the top of the show, if you like to listen to podcasts, as you obviously do because you're listening to this, go and check out Board Games Insider now in its 245th ish episode. And it's uh, only about a 45-minute podcast, and we do it weekly when we can get together, and it's all focused on the industry. Our commentary on the industry, of course, and questions that you give us to talk about the industry. You can catch up with me on YouTube on my channel, The Podfather of Gaming, where we also post the video portion. We do we record it in video and in audio, so you can watch us look like idiots there. If you'd like, Ignacy and I, and we do it usually far apart. Some very recently we've done it together, which was kind of fun. Um, and I also post on my YouTube channel other things that I've been doing, a lot of which are surrounding interviewing people. I, I was co-host of um, Origins TV at, at Origins, and I went around and I did uh, 30 plus interviews of various publishers from the smallest of the small ones to the largest ones. And I brought those all together and I put them up on the channel. You get to see what different publishers are doing. And I'm going to be going out and doing more interviews as time goes on. At Gen Con, for instance, I did two interviews with Avalon Hill, which we talked a little bit about with Betrayal at House on the Hill. And the biggest single piece of news out of Gen Con was that Heroescape was coming back. And I spoke to the original designer, Craig Van Ness in an exclusive interview, and another member in a separate interview of the Avalon Hill team, who was basically part of the team bringing back Hero Quest, as well as Betrayal at House on the Hill and other games coming out. So you can check out all those interviews again on the Podfather of Gaming YouTube channel. Other things, if you would like, please go over to Facebook, and we have a very, very active group. Uh, the group is called the Podfather of Gaming Group not the Podfather Gaming page, but you go in there and you can find the group. And we have an active, social, fun discussions, not even about gaming for maybe half of it. It's only, I don't know, 30% gaming related and 70% keeping each other, in relating to each other, funny memes and things like that. A very social place to hang out. So the Podfather of Gaming group on Facebook. On Twitter, very active. Uh, you can catch me at Podfather Gaming, same on Instagram. Um, and that's it. And I appreciate so much you guys <laughs> having me on. This has been this has been very, very fun. Thank you. Let's go ahead and wrap this podcast up. As always, I'm Josh. And I'm Andrew. And this has been the Tabletop Summary. Mm-hmm.